Are we gonna sing along? Yes, of course! I wanna put on my, 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 my boogie shoes. Yeah! Leonard. Well, it's nice to meet you. Why are you here? I suppose I'm here to make friends with you. And your dad's too. But my heart is broken. Why is it broken? Because of what I have to do today. are here to prevent the apocalypse. Your family has been chosen to make a horrible decision. If you fail to choose, the world will end. Welcome to the Strange Harbors podcast, a weekly discussion of film, television, and pop culture. My name is Jeff Zhang, and tonight I'm joined by... Amir Ture. And Eric Wong. So this week we are discussing director M. Night Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin, based on Paul Tremblay's 2018 novel, Cabin at the End of the World. The movie stars Jonathan Groff, Ben Aldridge, Kristen Tway, along with Dave Bautista, Rupert Grint, Nikki Amuka Bird, and Abby Quinn. I feel like we probably did this a year and a half ago with Shyamalan's last movie, Old. So I don't know, should we get a little bit into our thoughts on him as a director, at least for some new listeners who might not have gone back that far to that episode? Movie's doing pretty well, by the way. Dethroned Avatar as the number one movie. Yeah, already made its budget back, I think. It's like a $20 million movie, like one of those like, yeah, yeah, yeah. low mid-range movies, and it's, it's already made its money back, so that's good. Yeah, let uh, James Cameron make his $2 billion and then take over the number one, the two kings <laughs> at the top of the box office. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think it's interesting that Shyamalan has seen quite a bit of a reappraisal, especially with movies that weren't really received that well early on in his career, like The Village and Signs. I've even seen some, like, reevaluations of Lady in the Water. All like, right, get the fuck out of here with that. <laughs> I still have never seen Lady in the Water. Is it that bad, Amir? I know you... It's bad, dude. Don't it's like bad. it. 
No, I saw it in theaters. It was bad, man. It's a rough I one. remember when Old came out, I was not a fan of it. I haven't, like, completely come around on it, but a lot of the formal aspects of that movie and how it's made, I do respect. I just can't come around to the ending and, like, some of the more hokey stuff in that movie. I just can't get on board. And I still don't like Glass either. But I like a lot of his stuff. I love that first stretch of movies he's made. The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, The Village, Signs, they're all fucking bangers. What do you guys think about his movies? Uh, I think I disagree with you on Signs. The water shit's a little stupid. <laughs> but yeah, I think those first few are all definitely his strongest stretch of work, right? Mm-hmm. Did you say you liked The Happening as well? I can't get on board with The Happening. Okay, either. so there's a rough stretch in the middle there. And then, like, yeah. when does it pick back up? Is it with Split? It's The Visit. Oh, it's The Visit. Okay. I think there is no love for The Last Airbender. No one's trying to reclaim that movie as a secret masterpiece yeah, or anything, because I think yeah. that's, like, just a total piece of garbage. I don't even know anyone who's actually seen After Earth, the <laughs> Will Smith, Jaden Smith. Yeah, dude. Double Bill? I don't think anyone's seen that it one. It didn't even uh, do that badly. It made 250 mil on a budget of 130 mil. Did it really? Yeah. Oh, man. That was 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, you that think of like it in that. your head as like, oh, it's like a mega ultra bomb. Worst movie ever. But, like, it's not. All right. I've actually never seen that, so. Yeah, same. But I love The Visit. The Visit is really fun. I really do like Split, although... Because of Glass, I think it kind of ruined Split a little bit, and I wish it didn't like spill over to Unbreakable either, because Unbreakable is perfect. I love that movie. What do you think, Derek? I mean, I agree with you guys. I think his early work is great. Unbreakable, uh, Sixth Sense. Even before this movie, Knock at the Cabin, I don't think I was convinced of this whole Shamalamasance. I don't know what you want to call it. <laughs> I agree. I, I like Split. Glass, I didn't like. And I haven't seen The Visit. Old was just okay. You know, there's a lot of that stuff before The Visit. What was the movie with the elevator? He didn't direct that, though. Oh, he didn't direct that? I thought he did. No, cared. he didn't direct that. I think he wrote and produced. Oh, okay. Yeah, like all that stuff you mentioned, like After Earth, The Last Airbender didn't leave a great taste in my mouth. I will say that I think he is a great visual director. Like, I think he's a good director. You know, even thinking about this movie, the movie that we're reviewing today, there are definitely things I want to praise. Like, I want to get into a little bit more detail. But I don't know. The more and more movies that are coming out, I don't know if M. Night is my director, right? Like, I don't know if I love him as much as I know other people do. Uh, what do you think about Signs in the Village? Um, I remember liking The Village well enough when it came out i haven't revisited since i watched that movie like i remember there was a lot of hate for that movie when it originally came out and i know a lot of people have been reevaluating it lately or in the last couple years like i never had an issue with it i do have my issues with signs i kind of agree with amir's assessment of some of the details of that movie but that's another one i have not revisited and you know maybe i should i think i said that when we did our old podcast but i still have it maybe i should go revisit some of his older movies yeah I think the further we get from late 2000s YouTube criticism of movies where it's like cinema sins and nitpicking plot holes, the further we get away from that, the more I like movies like Signs and The Village. First of all, The Village, I think, suffered from horrible marketing where it was marketed as a horror movie with another twist at the end. It's more of like a gothic romance than a real horror movie. I would say it's more akin to something like, I don't know, like Crimson Peak than like The Sixth Sense. You know what I mean? But I like his early stretch of movies. At the beginning of his career, people were like, oh, he's the next Spielberg. And 
I actually think on a technical level, on a formal level, I don't think that's untrue. Because his filmmaking has gotten more and more confident, especially since The Visit. Because after like the streak of Lady in the Water, The Happening, and The Last Airbender, and After Earth, studios just would not give him shots anymore. His last five movies have all been self-financed. So The Visit, he like took his house as collateral on a loan. What? So he couldn't make The Visit. Yeah. And he knocked it out of the park. That movie made a bunch of money. And now he's back in it. Five million, million dollar, dollar budget, a hundred million almost. Exactly what I was about to say. Crushed it. Wow, that's amazing. I did not know that that's how he financed it. Lit these. a fire under his ass. Yeah. Even though I don't like Glass and Old that much, there's definitely stuff in there that I really, really respect. They also made tons of, I mean, at least Glass made a ton of money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a $20 million movie made $250 million. This is a guy who can bring in the cash. I think I heard a stat that his last four movies have opened at number one. So, I mean, financially, I think he's been pretty successful with his movies since The Visit, right? We're getting away from Just Point, which was technical mastery, right? Yeah, that's true. I think a lot of that is on display here at Knock at the Cabin. I just want to say that you saying that technically he is the heir to Spielberg is as good a twist as any of his movies have ever had. I did not expect, <laughs> I did not expect you to say that, but uh, I don't know. I'm not prepared to go there. Maybe I have to go back and watch some of these movies again, but I... Uh, boy, I don't know. I mean, this is like, I can see in parts where you're like, oh, wow, this is really, really good stuff. But I don't know if he has that consistency. I just, I'm not comfortable with that comparison. But hey, I like that you went there. It's at least an interesting take. Okay, maybe it's a little hyperbolic to say that he's on the level of Spielberg. Just because I think Spielberg has shots within his filmography where you actually don't notice how great the shots are and like the composition is. It melds seamlessly into the movie where you don't even notice it. M. Night Shyamalan, I think, is a little more showy, and you can definitely tell when he's flexing. And I love all his flexes. I think there's a lot of flair and Knock at the Cabin that's just fucking out of this world. It's so fucking great. He's definitely, like, a visual master, I think. Especially with his, like, close-ups, the way he composes his frames, the way he uses negative space, the way he, like, cuts away from things and lets your mind fill in the picture sometimes. This one really dances around its R rating, too. And I think it's for the better in Knock at the Cabin, like some of the violence and stuff. We'll get into it. But uh, I love this movie. I think it's great. What did you guys think of this movie? Uh, I think of this movie the same way I think about M. Night Shyamalan. It's a bit of a love-hate. It's a mixed bag. There were definitely parts of it I loved, and there's some things about it that I did not like. I can't give it an unqualified, unreserved recommendation. What do you think, Derek? Uh, I think... I mostly agree with you, Amir, I think. Yeah, in your face, Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that was not the point, but um, (laughs) I agree with Jeff. I think there are some directorial flares that seems very M. Night, but also I think it really works for this movie. Like I think about the opening of this movie, I think it's really great. I think the first scene that Dave Bautista meets the Wen character was really well shot and really well composed and great acting on Dave Bautista's part. I think it's not hyperbolic to say that Dave Bautista is the best thing about this movie and really carries this movie for me. And I think Rupert Grint is great in it too. But I do think that the two dad leads, Jonathan Groff, Ben Aldridge, don't quite work for me. I think the rest of the ensemble cast, the four people that invade the cabin, don't really work for me. Really? I think everyone's great in this. Yeah, I'm with Jeff on that part. Cast didn't bug me. I thought the performance was uniformly pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I think we'll get into it. I think the thing that really 
probably doesn't sit well with me the most is the ending i think aha <laughs> you and me both you and me both brother the um, ending rocks fuck you both no. <laughs> Yeah, we'll get into more detail when we get into spoilers. It's really hard to talk about without spoiling anything. So I got to ask you guys both. Did you guys read the book? No. No. Did you read the book? I did read the book. Okay. Did you read the book because of this movie or did you read it a while ago? No, no, no. Years ago. And the book has a completely different ending. Mm -hmm. And people are very upset that the movie changed the book ending. I actually really like they changed the book ending. We'll get into it because obviously that's big spoiler territory. I think the premise of this movie is pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. I'll give like a brief synopsis, right? Yeah, yeah. In this movie, Jonathan Groff, Ben Aldridge, and Kristen Tway, they play this family of three, two gay dads and their adopted daughter. And they are vacationing at a remote cabin. And they are interrupted by these four strangers and they're held hostage in their cabin. And... These strangers, led by Dave Batista, demand that they sacrifice one of their own to prevent the apocalypse. This movie is just about a battle of faith, whether they believe these intruders in their house and the struggle with that decision within that family, within like a home invasion thriller. That's basically what this movie is. But I want to say that the first scene of this movie is a fucking banger. It's really, really good. This is one of those movies where it wastes no time. There's like no exposition, no real setup, straight into the premise of the movie where, you know, Wen is outside by the cabin and she's collecting grasshoppers for, I guess, like a school project or like something she's doing for herself. I don't know what it is, Mm -hmm. where she's approached by Leonard, played by Dave Bautista. And I think right out of the gate, the filmmaking here is just really, really good with the close-ups of the two characters. The performance of Dave Bautista drives how it's going to be for the rest of the movie, where like he's just this huge, hulking, intimidating figure, but his demeanor is like very gentle mm-hmm. and a little disarming. So I think that contrast is really, really great. And then M. Night Shyamalan's his like, framing of... The close-ups, you know, comparing, like, Dave Bautista's, like, craggy giant head with Wen's innocent baby face. Those two close-ups are really, really effective. And then he, like, intercuts it with the three other intruders coming out of the woods with their homemade weapons. It's really, Mm -hmm. really effective. I think it's a great opening scene. The little handshake as well, the difference in size. Yeah, the difference in size. giant, like, grizzly bear paw. And her, like, yeah. tiny little eight-year-old girl hand. Yeah. With all his real-life tattoos and everything. Yeah, man. Yeah. And, like, that shot of her looking up at him from his perspective and then the opposite. You just, think like, see the huge size difference. And then he comes on so sweet and introduces himself and kind of tries to be a nice guy with this awful task. Yeah. yeah. He's been given by the gods. You guys want to just start talking about things? Spoilers from here on out. I think we should do it. Yeah. So if you haven't yeah. seen the movie, go out and see it. We're going to go straight into spoiler territory, talk about all the scenes in the movie, in particular its ending. Before we move on from this, I also want to praise this opening scene. Like I think M. Night does this a lot throughout this whole movie where he smartly uses like cutting and like panning, especially in this scene, like 
Dave Bautista's eyes being diverted. He seems distracted. The camera like pans over to like this forest that's empty. But then eventually, you know, we do see those three figures blurred in the background. You're not too sure what you're seeing, but you definitely can tell that they're figures. I think his use of foreground background is really well utilized in this movie. Like craft wise, M. Night is a good director. Yeah, I think what he does here a lot is have dialogue delivered off screen. So you get the reaction shot of the person that's being spoken to. And he does that with like a lot of the violence too. So when people start dying, it's like close-ups of people reacting to like the violence rather than showing the violence on screen. Although he does show it on screen too. And even that is like framed pretty cleverly. And you know, I think Dave Batista does some great face acting here too, where, you know, like you said, Derek, reacting to his three other, I don't know. Compatriots. <laughs> compatriots, I guess. But like the unease in his face, you can tell that he's not really associated with them. He's not like, oh, we're a team and we're going to take you hostage or whatever. Like he doesn't want to do what they're there to do. And like he's not overly familiar with these other people either. The way that shows on his face during this initial introduction of the character is really, really good. Going into like the home invasion itself, that's really shot very kinetically like the banging on the doors with the close-ups on like the structures in the house and like it feels very claustrophobic but the camera's very nimble it works its way throughout like this tiny cabin and you have like little aerial shots too it's all really effective i'll lend credit to your spielberg comparison from earlier too because there's definitely some jaws shit here with um when looking out the windows, and I think it's Redmond who goes by, like a shark fin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really effective horror and scene setting here. Yeah, and before they even break in, like, when is telling her dads, Daddy Eric and Daddy Andrew, right? They peer outside through the blinds, and you see just the people's legs and their feet and the giant weapons that they have hanging from their arms. It's really effective. It's pretty intimidating and ominous, you know? That's a great shot. We've kind of already mentioned this, but like the large narrative, I guess, device for this story is that they're invading because they've been seeing these visions. They think they've been sent here on a mission from presumably God or someone. They have to present this choice to this family where one of them has to willingly sacrifice themselves and another member has to kill them in order to stop the apocalypse, right? And I guess part of that is also that there's like a timeline that has to be kept where they ask the question, like, are you now willing to sacrifice one of you? If they say no, one of them has to sacrifice themselves, which then unleashes some kind of plague on the world, right? That's the way that they can prove to this family that what they're saying isn't false, right? The first one to go is Rupert Grint's character. They ask the family, like, are you willing to sacrifice one of you? And they say no, because they don't believe them. And then, you know, he is murdered by the rest of the group. And they go to a news report where they witness a giant tsunami off the west coast of, like, uh, I think, Oregon and kills a bunch of people. And and Dave Bautista's character of Leonard lays it out. The first is going to be a giant flood. The second will be some kind of plague. And then the third one, raining down fire or raining down glass. Rupert Grint's death is fucking incredible, by the way. Yeah, we got to get into the the details of that. Yes. Yeah, the way they shoot that is just so fucking great. He pulls his white stocking cap over his head. (laughs) <laughs> and then they all beat him to death with their makeshift bludgeons. It's insane. Yeah, yeah. Um, And you don't actually see that. Uh, and this is what Jeff's talking about a little bit about the restraint here. He does cut away, but you hear the sounds of them bludgeoning him to death. 
And it's brutal because the two dads are tied up in chairs being forced to watch this. And their Mm -hmm. little, like, eight-year-old daughter is also in the room. And, like, Redmond obviously knows what's going to happen. You get these close-ups of his face as he's staring at Andrew and Eric, telling them that they're not allowed to look away from him as he dies. It's insane. Yeah, they, like, bury the weapons in his skull. You only see, like, I don't know, maybe the bottom half. It's just mostly his face in the white stocking, like the sack. You kind of have to see it. It's really well shot. And then you get the reaction from the family's faces. It's really well done. Yeah, and then you got that cool shot of Dave Bautista doing that last blow to his body. And, like, Uh the camera pivots and tilts the same angle as the axe. I thought that was pretty creative and pretty cool. Yeah. Um, it's the same shot as you've seen in the trailers, too. Like, they have the same shot in the trailers. I really love Rupert Grint in this scene. Like, his acting is just spectacular. He's not in the movie definitely as long as the rest of the cast. He's the first one to go, but he makes a really great impression on me, at least. I mean, I think the fear, the quivering, his death was memorable to me in this movie. Yeah. So, what I liked about the movie with the intruders and stuff is, like... You almost want to believe them because they sell themselves as normal, regular people. They don't come across as, like, religious fanatics or, like, doomsday zealots or, like, these insane prophets or anything like that. They're, like, normal people. Like, Dave Batista, he says he's a second-grade gym teacher and... One's a line cook and one's a nurse. Yeah, one's a line cook. Nikki Amuka Bird's character is a nurse and... I guess Rupert Grin is just a bigot, but... <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's his profession. Professional, Professional bigot. bigot. <laughs> the fact that it's two gay dads is like a big part of this movie, where Andrew, who's played by Ben Aldridge, he doesn't believe any of this, right? He thinks this is all bullshit, and it's like a smokescreen for like a homophobic attack, especially when he feels like he recognizes Rupert Grin's character as someone who attacked him years before. And we get a flashback to that as well. I think a lot of the flashbacks are just about the way that they're treated because of their sexuality. The first flashback is they go and adopt Wen in China. Andrew has to pretend he's the brother-in-law instead of Eric's husband. Mm -hmm. And another flashback is dealing with Andrew's homophobic dad, who, like, they cut out of their lives. The third flashback is this homophobic attack where they're like the victim of a hate crime, probably confirmed that it is Rupert Grin's character, smashes a beer bottle over Andrew's head. You don't see his face, but in the end, they confirm that it probably was him. It was so, him, right? Because he, yeah, he remembers yeah, yeah. his name, and then he, he, yeah, that's he, he picks goes up out their, the license. The driver's license, and the name is confirmed. Yeah, for sure. And this attack is so traumatizing for Andrew. Like, he goes into therapy for a number of years and all of this, but also he becomes like fixated on like self defense or whatever. So he starts like. I don't know if he's taking boxing class or just getting his aggression out, but then he also goes and buys a gun. Yeah. And he has and that gun in the safe in the truck, and he's mm-hmm. brought it to this vacation. So the movie sets up Andrew and Eric as being these two opposites in terms of their willingness to listen to this goofy apocalypse story. Eric's been hit in the head in the fighting, but he's been given a concussion. He's hit in the head by this giant, I don't know, makeshift pole arm. He's hit in the head. He has a huge concussion. He's a little bit dazed. He says he's seeing like figures of You light. actually see those figures, by the way. Yeah, uh, you do. Mm-hmm. I didn't notice that until someone pointed it out on Twitter, but like you see like a hooded figure standing next to uh, the four intruders when it's from Eric's point of view. It's actually even in the trailer. 
um, which I think oh, is I didn't know that. really fascinating. Yeah. The movie sets up Andrew and Eric as being polar opposites. Eric's kind of more willing to listen to this story because a he's a man of faith but b he also yeah. does have a concussion <laughs> so his husband is a little bit worried like oh are you falling for this because of like i don't know your religiosity because you've just been hit in the head and you've got a concussion and they're trying to kind of work on you andrew's like militantly against this he thinks that these people who've come to invade his house are uh suicide cultists which I think is pretty reasonable to think well they don't start off as polar opposites right because andrew first is like they're definitely cultists, and this whole thing is bullshit. And Eric's like, oh, I agree with you. But then, like, as the movie goes on and Leonard starts showing, like, the news reports, Eric starts to believe it more and more. But Andrew remains the skeptic, right? Because he's like, oh, right. they're just timing this pre-recorded footage to what they're doing, and, like, it's all an act. But Eric can never be fully convinced that it's not real. Those fissures eventually crack open into, like, the ending of the movie, so... Um, I don't want to get into that just quite yet, but but yeah, I love all the news report footage. M. Night has a little cameo again in, like, the Home Shopping Network. Yeah, that one was fun. All this stuff kind of worked for me. Like, I didn't know where it was going. Is it real? Is it fake? I mean, I, obviously, I'd read the book, but I don't know. You don't know what M. Night Shyamalan's going to do with, like, the source material, so he might do, like, a full-on swerve from the plot of the book. I thought the whole dichotomy between Andrew and Eric worked for me. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, it worked. It felt like the end of the movie was always a little bit telegraphed with them setting up this dichotomy. It felt like mm. it was a little bit on rails, like it kind of had no room to maneuver because, you know, you, you already know who these two people are. You kind of already know which way this is going to go. But to its credit, those things do keep it nice and lean and tight. It's a very tight movie. This is like 100 minutes or something. Pleasantly surprised at how short it was. This isn't even a two-hour movie, mm -hmm. which in this day and age seems like really rare. So I did appreciate that tightness, even if it did feel a little bit locked in. I will say I think that the resolution of the end and like where this relationship heads by the end of it, I felt a little unearned. Like I personally did not see how they got to that point, especially because the Andrew character is one way and the Eric character is another, but where they end up, I just don't believe where Andrew ends up at the end of this movie. Part of it is where M. Knight decides to put the focus on when it comes to this question of like what we're supposed to believe and not. Are we supposed to believe this? And I think by the end of it, that answer is given us too quickly. And then it doesn't allow time for the two leads of Andrew and Eric to really contemplate and to kind of resolve what that really means for their relationship. Mm. Dude, I think we need to start talking about this ending. All right. So let's just let's get into talking about the ending. Just to recap a little bit, we know Redmond is the first person to die here, bludgeoned to death by his comrades, the two fathers, Daddy Eric, Daddy Andrew. They're still obviously not convinced of this. I mean, they think they've been attacked by like some kind of suicide cult or something. They're not convinced. And so Redmond dies and they're supposedly the first plague. The next to go is Adrienne, kind of creepily pleading for her life, but her comrades bludgeon her to death anyway. Now she's pleading with Andrew and Eric to make the choice and they refuse. And so her comrades bludgeon her to death. Third to go, I guess, is Sabrina as a byproduct of Andrew getting that gun from the truck. 
the final one is Dave Bautista's Leonard, who slits his own throat on the like balcony outside. Yeah, he sits down in one of the chairs and slits his own throat. And I guess that's the unlocking of the final seal that's going to end the world. So we had the tsunamis, and then the deadly flu, and then the planes dropping out of the sky. And then I guess the fourth one is a lightning that starts hitting the cabin and everything around. So at this point, the two dads are forced to take stock and see, do they still resist believing what they've been shown, or do they buy into this? It seems like throughout the whole movie, you get the sense that Eric is buying into this more than Andrew is. It seems like he's a man of faith. He's like believes in the supernatural. He believes in God. But apparently, Andrew's you know not religious. Also, maybe Eric is just less bitter, less jaded by the world, by the things that he's had to suffer. And that's kind of my issue. I think that he is more and more believing, but then. I think his actions don't quite speak that, right? Till the end, he's trying to stop Leonard. I think there is a point where he, I think earlier in the movie, needed to then voice maybe like an opinion. Maybe they are telling the truth. Maybe we should be believing this. But like at every moment, he seems to be with his husband. For me, it felt like until all of a sudden he's like, no, I do believe you need to kill me conveniently after all these guys are dead now. I do think Eric's vision has a lot to do with it, especially like the future that he sees with Andrew and Wen all grown up. I don't think that vision is like shared with Andrew, but that's probably the thing that convinces him that maybe that it is real. Plus all the fucking planes falling out of the sky right in their backyard, maybe. Maybe that has something to do with it. There's like lightning strikes in the forest right around the cabin. So the whole thing seems very apocalyptic by the time Leonard dies. So it's not like there's no like physical proof that's not on the TV, right? So I do agree that for the 100 minutes, it is a little rushed to get to this conclusion. Mm-hmm where Andrew just happens to agree and, like, you know, makes the sacrifice to kill Eric to basically save the world. But I think when I was watching the movie, I was thinking about the ending of the novel and how it changed the ending completely and how much I liked what they changed. Okay, so we probably should get into this. Like, can you describe what happens in the book and then what they change? Okay, so when I first read the novel, I was like, holy shit, this ending is crazy. In... The novel, there's a scuffle, and Wen is shot and killed. Mm -hmm. And what happens is they go through the whole apocalypse thing, and then they're like, oh, well, Wen is dead, so does that end the apocalypse? No, well, Wen's death was an accident, so you guys still have to sacrifice someone. They decide not to sacrifice anyone, and Andrew's like, even if the apocalypse is real, I refuse to listen to a god that doesn't accept their daughter's death as enough of a sacrifice they decide to face whatever comes apocalypse or not Mm -hmm. it's like a gut punch ending because they kill a kid in the book right Mm -hmm. so i was like wow that's like a ballsy twist for this novel and i i really respected that but the more i thought about it after watching the movie it's kind of just cruel and nihilistic kind of a cop-out because it takes the decision to sacrifice one of their own out of their hands you know So I actually think what they did in the movie is a lot better, and it has its own ambiguity that I really, really respect. Okay, what is the ambiguity that you see at the end of this movie? What I thought was a little bit of a cop-out, it was a little too buttoned up by the end of this movie, right? It's like they were telling the truth, they kill one of them, and everything is fine. 
And that is like my biggest critique, right, of this ending is that it just seems so buttoned up. It's so clear that there is some catastrophe, there is some higher being that's causing this, and it's just kind of neatly tied up in a bow. And, and it makes the like logical utilitarian conclusion about sacrificing one life to save all of humanity, it makes it seem the obvious choice. And then anyone who's been raised in a Christian faith or in like the Christian, you know, Western tradition understands the idea of one person sacrificing themselves for all of humanity, very, you know, on the nose. But I guess getting to the ending, we've been primed to see Eric as this sort of believer. And of course, that's borne out. At the end of the film, he decides that he does believe in all of this supernatural stuff and that he's going to sacrifice himself in order to save the world. And more specifically, to save his husband and their daughter. He says earlier on, he saw a vision of his daughter grown with Andrew. That's in God. Me by the way, I actually really like the little flash forwards that they put in there. Seeing when all grown up, I kind of like that scene. I don't know if you guys thought it was like a little tag. Really, no. I did not like that scene. <laughs> I didn't find it particularly moving. For me, that ties in with the end. The scene when when and Andrew are in the car. This feeling that everything's going to be okay because Eric had this vision that when is happy and so is Andrew and like... Is everything going to be happy though? I mean, they do go back and forth <laughs> turning on and off boogie shoes. I know Andrew ends up yeah, turning it on and agreeing, a... <laughs> but that doesn't mean that's like his permanent mental state after making the sacrifice, no, right? No, but it's your hint that everything is going to be okay. Yeah, especially when we jump. Okay, so I think that's where we differ because I didn't read mm -hmm. it that way at all. I think what yeah. you're talking about is how, okay, they make the sacrifice and the apocalypse is averted, which is more like the material fact of the story. But I'm talking more about like the movie's emotional ambiguity, which I don't think there's any way you can say that it's unambiguously positive or happy, right? I don't know. Maybe you guys don't agree. Okay, all right. I don't know how to compare this to like another movie that can make you understand where I'm coming from. Okay, all right. So I think the best comparison I can give is the ending to The Graduate. You know, Dustin Hoffman, he makes the big romantic gesture to end up with Elaine, Catherine Ross's character. And, you know, she leaves her wedding and her fiancé at the altar and they get on the bus. So happy ending, right? But uh, he still fucked her mom. So you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so I think, like, there's that emotional ambiguity there where... Okay, so at one point, Leonard makes it a point, which I don't believe is in the book, that this isn't the first time four cultists have convened, right? And this isn't the first time a family has to make a sacrifice to prevent the apocalypse. Do you guys remember that? Because yeah, I don't know, is it Leonard who oh, says okay. that? So one of the characters says that, right? And I think one of them says, like, the effect, other families made the choice, or, like, why can't you? Or something like that. So I feel like where others, taking, like, bad faith readings see the movie as, like, a call for capitulation, I think that's pretty, like, I don't know, uncharitable lens to the view of this story. I actually think there's something pretty powerful about placing the decision into the hands of a gay family to save a world that has always treated them like shit and has never cared about them. But I feel like you can read it the other way, too, which I feel like isn't really fair. Uh, I mean, I guess it's a matter of, I don't know, I, I mean, it's a matter of taste, I guess, whether you like the defiant fuck you ending of the book or sort of more conciliatory kumbaya save the world ending of the movie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think, I don't know, there's something, Derek said it was too buttoned up, there's something too on rails about the movie and, and its morality and the foregone conclusion. Like, halfway through, you kind of know how it's going to go, right? Um, mm -hmm. I think the book ending is really shocking, really awful. I don't know how they could have filmed it. Like, I'm not Chamon definitely wouldn't have done that. It would have been a really difficult 
nasty story, but it would have been genuinely shocking and genuinely messed up in a way that this is sort of feels like it's kind of going through the motions paint by numbers with the, I don't know, with the morality of the consequences. It all does feel preordained and not in a good way. Mm. I mean, I wouldn't go as far as saying like it's this happy ending that I am looking for. The part of it is kind of sad, right? Because in the end, Andrew is wrong. In this movie, he professes the whole time, I don't believe in this. Uh, or we get one particular flashback, you know, he's not very religious. He doesn't like believe in like a god. And he makes remarks about Eric, you know, if you want to pray, you go ahead and if you want to. Right? Like, he doesn't stop his husband from doing that, but clearly he isn't a man of faith. So, like, what does this mean at the end when he does have to shoot his husband and kill him and then was wrong the whole time? Well, and I don't think like, the tragedy is that he's wrong. I think the tragedy is that he now has to believe or else he can't go on. Believe right? in like, a God that made him do this, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. the alternative is just something that he can't even fathom, that... He killed his husband for no reason. For so nothing. he has right, to exactly. believe that his sacrifice meant something. Yeah. And even then, I feel like, I don't know, how long is this going to last? How long is it going to be before they choose the next, like, four horsemen to terrorize another family, right? Like, yeah. I don't believe that was in the book. So I feel like that's, like, an added wrinkle where, I don't know, how long is this cyclical yeah. staving <laughs> off the apocalypse? How long does that cycle last, you know? Yeah. I don't know. For me, I think the ending just, you know, I'll say it again, does become a little too buttoned up. It's funny, you know, I'm the guy who always harks on ambiguity, but I'm kind of with Amir on this. I I think I could have used a little bit more of it. Because my understanding of the book ending is that when they do choose not sacrifice one of them, right, theoretically means the end of the world, but you don't actually find that out in the book. It like stops short of telling you if their decision to not kill themselves or kill one of them, does that mean they walk the earth alone by themselves? Or does it mean it was never really faith? I think in movie form, I do agree with Amir. Like, halfway through this, there's only one real place for it to go. So, materially, like, story-wise... It's a foregone conclusion. So, the only thing that you have left is a little bit of, like, emotional ambiguity with Andrew wrestling with that choice. What are you going to say, Amir? Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. I do see that point of view, right? You could also see it as a little bit cowardly to not take your own premise seriously and not make the end of the world real right, thing, right, right. right? Like, I totally get that other perspective, too. I mean, I think the only You possible... just didn't see it that way. You just felt it the other way more. Kinda, you know, there was another aspect of the ending that bothered me, too. I mean, I, I'll say the only thing that was not on rails was maybe the M. Night Shyamalan twist could have been Andrew being the one who sacrificed himself. You know, that, that was, like, the only possible... I feel like that would have been too much of a stretch point. from, like, a from non-believer to, like, exactly. yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Which is why, yeah. you know, that was, like, that's the only possible wrinkle they could throw on it, which... You know, they didn't, which I think is to their credit. But um, the other aspect of the end that bothered me was I was bothered by, like, noble gay couples sacrificing themselves to, like, save a world that hates them. I don't know. It bothered me a little bit. I don't know why. It shouldn't. It's, like, obviously, like, a noble thing to do and, you know, correct under all kinds of different moral and ethical frameworks. But I was just bothered by, like, I don't know, knuckling under the tyranny of this ask, right? Bothered me in a way. I, I don't know how to put it. It feels like, I don't know, respectability politics or something. And They it, should have said, like, fuck you. I don't know. We present this perfect gay couple who are chosen because of the purity of their love and then they're asked to sacrifice it. And I don't know. Something about it bugged me and I can't entirely put my finger on it. But when I heard about the fuck you ending of the book, I was like, okay, I get that. And now, to an extent, the fuck you ending of the book is earned because when is killed, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. that earned the kind of fuck the world ending, which I don't think the movie did enough to earn. But don't you think it's a kind of a cop out because they don't have to make the choice? 
them, well, no, their right? choice is well, the choice is fuck that they, the world, right? Yeah, like, fuck the like world. That is yeah. the choice. Like, there's no choice in the movie either, right? Because it was always going to be Eric, and they were always going to do it. You All know? right, I can see that. So, like, I see it as like there really was no choice. In thinking about it, I'm kind of coming around to your idea that yeah, there's no plot ambiguity, but maybe the emotional stakes are what's supposed to be pulling at you. Um, yeah, I can see people bristling against this perfect gay couple giving into this ask for them to sacrifice their happiness to like save a world that's never given a shit about them right what are Um, the fucking x-men like get the fuck out of here (laughs) (laughs) i also feel like to say that this movie is reactionary or conservative is also incorrect no that's definitely people who are saying that so i definitely don't agree with that yeah i don't agree with that one either i don't think it's trying to be i mean okay I guess you could say it's a reaction is so strong. Like I could see where you see more conservative. Okay, people or, or people misuse elements. the word reactionary all the time. Yeah. Right? Like banning video games after a shooting, that's reactionary. What's this reactionary you're just making fucking words I up. Mean, it yeah, is like, a religious movie. It takes the premises sure. of religion seriously, which maybe it's not a religious movie, but it does take some of the premises of religion seriously, which maybe that's what people are reacting to. I don't know. I don't know. But M. Night Shyamalan's always played with faith, right? A lot of his yeah, movies yeah, yeah, have it's important. done this. Signs, The Village, obviously this. Unbreakable, too. Unbreakable. The last thing I wanted to ask you, and then this kind of is sparked a little bit from something you said, Amir. When you guys were watching this, were you guys expecting the M. Night twist? No. It seemed like it was too on rails for a twist. What about you, oh, Jeff? Yeah. What about you, Jeff? Uh, I think he's pretty much outgrown the idea uh, of the twist. The penchant for twists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He hasn't done it in a while. Like, can you call the ending of old a twist? Not really. This Not really. whole mm-hmm. corrupt pharma angle kind of tacked on. That's the whole reason I can't get on board with old. That ending is just terrible. But yeah, yeah I don't think I was expecting a twist. Although going into the movie, having read the book, I was like, oh, maybe they'll keep the book ending. That would be shocking and surprising. But the fact of a twist ending was not in my mind when I was watching this. Okay. I know I've listened to a couple of the podcasts, listened to people talk about this movie, and it just seems like M. Night still can't escape that, right? That idea that he's so tied with the guy who does twist. The most surprising thing about this movie was, not the most surprising, but like it was surprising to see that in the end, there was absolutely no twist, right? It was just kind of straightforward, straightly story. Is there anything else you guys wanted to bring up? No, not really. I mean, I had a blast watching this movie, just the formal aspects of it. One thing that we didn't mention that I kind of want to talk about is the most insane shot of this whole movie we didn't mention at all when they fucking attach a camera to rupert grin's head mm. as andrew's demolishing him do you guys remember that when he's like boxing him during yeah. the yeah, home yeah, invasion yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah they like yeah, attach yeah. a little camera to rupert grin's head and like his head is just flying back and forth while uh andrew's just pummeling him i thought that yeah. was like a really fun use of a fixed camera mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i've never seen anything like that that shot you're mentioning, there's a lot of really creative, a lot of really fun shots in this movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some would say Spielbergian. I won't say who, but some would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I feel like uh, I'm never going to uh, live that down. Right no, no, no. The new Joker. Um, I agree <laughs> that it's probably his best in a while. And going through most of it, I actually really sort of liked it. But the ending didn't sit well with me, and I'm still kind of coming to terms mm-hmm. with it. I don't know. What about you, Derek? your final thoughts since the resurgence of him since the visit you know i still think i stand by what i said earlier which is i think split is still my favorite amongst that bunch but i did really like this one you know i liked it more than old definitely like it more than glass 
But I'm kind of with you on the same page, Amira. Like the ending still doesn't sit quite right with me. Mm, I liked this a lot. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's his best since the village, probably. Kind of just the opposite of you guys. I think the ending is what makes this movie. Like again, talking about the emotional ambiguity, it really worked for me. I know earlier, Derek, you said that the rush for Andrew to get to the point where he believes is a little pat. And I do Mm -hmm. agree with that. I think it's missing maybe a couple of steps from Andrew going from straight unbeliever, disbeliever to buying into Eric's faith. Yeah. I mean, you also said this movie's like a hundred minutes. So yeah, really tight. Where are you really going to make that? Yeah. Yeah. It needs to get there. It does need to get there pretty quickly. Yeah. But overall, if you're an M night fan, I definitely recommend it. I think, I mean, honestly, Looking at the slate of movies out there right now, like it's pretty slim too. So I would recommend this. If you're an M Night fan, if you're a Batista fan, he's great in this. Yeah, Batista's great in it. Yeah, um, yeah career no. best for Batista, you think? Uh, Potentially, yeah. I mean, I don't know what else has he been a lead lead in. That fucking Zack Snyder movie. <laughs> That's like an action role. He knocks it out of the park in this one way more than Army of the Dead. I agree. I agree. I mean, I know it's like ensemble cast, but I did really like him in Glass Onion. So. Yeah, I thought he was yeah, he's good in that. This movie just yeah. asks way more of him. Yes, than most. You know, like yeah. really playing into the contrast between his size and his demeanor, you know? Yeah. And I agree. I disagree, John. I think this is a career best for him. I think he's going to be the lead, supposedly, in some George R. R. Martin movie. Guess you're about this? No. Yo, is he ever going to finish that book? He's got another project <laughs> no. with Dave Bautista now. Oh, no, here we go. All right. So it's uh, Paul W.S. Anderson directing a story called In the Lost Lands. It's a movie based on a George R. R. Martin story. Mila Jovovich and Dave Bautista to lead. Uh-oh. <laughs> Paul W.S. <laughs> Anderson. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm actually a Paul W.S. Anderson defender. <laughs> Good. I was about to say, is this going to take a nasty turn? Like He I'm does a- dumb shit, but... Uh, I have a soft spot for all the dumb Resident, Resident Evil movies, Evil movies yeah. and uh, Monster Hunters fun, too. He does some dumb stuff. So, Event Horizon. I hello. didn't see Monster Hunter, but I heard the score is great. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Yeah. Tar joke there. Tar joke. Yeah, there you go. Um, but yeah, if there's nothing else, I think that will conclude this week's episode. Uh, Jeff, where can people find more of your work? You can find me on my blog at strangeharbors.com, where I reviewed Knock at the Cabin. And you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Strange Harbors. What about you guys? Um, you can find me literally anywhere but the Armageddon cabin. Fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's already burnt down anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Derek? Uh, you can find me at the World's Okayest Photos and Screen Agents Guild on Instagram. But if you like this podcast, the easiest way to support our podcast is to subscribe where you get your podcast, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or any of the other popular podcast apps. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, give us a great star rating. It really helps to get our podcast out to more people. Yeah, and if you have any questions, comments, suggestions on our episode on Knock at the Cabin or M. Night Shyamalan, feel free to shoot us an email at jeff at strangeharbors.com. We like getting listener mail. Sometimes we read it on the pod. And with that, we will see you guys next week. See you next week, everybody. See you guys then.